Amen. Well, Sunday night, and I still didn't get any taller, and he didn't get any lighter, you know. And so it's good to, good to be back with you tonight. Thank you so much for your gracious, uh, kind words, your support, your prayer. Uh, what a great, great act and move of God that we're seeing here um, at Lighthouse Baptist Church here in Xenia. Uh, just keep pressing on for the Lord. That's really kind of the heart of the message uh, here this evening. I really don't have a lot of things new to tell you. Your pastor uh, is a faithful um, Bible student, but a faithful Bible preacher and teacher, and so you get sound theology and doctrine each and every week, and so I just want to come and just continue to encourage you on your way. And so tonight, find your Bibles, uh, Revelation chapter 1, as he was uh, making reference there. Uh, we'll look in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 9. Revelation 1, verse number 9. Well, it wasn't a good day for the Bengals. I mean, it really wasn't a good day for the Browns. They didn't look that good either, but a little bit I saw, but they came out on top. So there's always the rest of the year, you know, so we'll, we'll take comfort in that. We'll move on to spiritual things now, all right? We'll put the past in the past, amen? Our past as believers has been redeemed, amen? We're going to press on. At least we're not Steeler fans. All right, so, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a few of you out there. We, we just got a lot. I, one of our church members, you know, here I'm trying to pray and get ready for tonight. I have my phone on silent mode. And uh, as soon as I turn it back on, I get this text from one of our ornery deacons. He said, well, I had cat, a little kitty cat for uh, lunch today. And uh, he said, I wonder how you were doing. I thought, oh, man, he likes the Browns, of course. So uh, you pray. You know, I got to go home to that. Amen. So anyway, let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verse number 9. And we'll read down to verse number 20. Tonight, uh, the message as we continue looking at standing in a fallen world, standing in a fallen world, as the theme of the revival is, and the message tonight is, to the church under attack, take courage. To the church under attack, take courage. So Revelation 1, verse 9, let's read together to verse 20. It says this, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Verse 15, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. And finally, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Let's pray tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to come to sing praises unto your name on this, the Lord's day. Lord, to sing of it being well with our soul. And Lord, as we think about no matter what the world may throw at us, no matter what each new day may bring forth and all the attacks. And more and more we see these things are commonplace for true believers and true churches that stand in these kind of compromising days. Lord, may we just take comfort. Uh, may we be courageous in the face of, uh, of hostility. 
And Lord, as the church continues to come under spiritual attack, and the enemy continues to try to throw uh, hatred and hostility toward us, Lord, may we be courageous to uh, uphold your glory, uh, to stand for the gospel, to present truth, and not cower uh, in these days in which you call us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this evening. Well, tonight I want to look into a, a case study uh, on the Apostle John in this book of Revelation and find ourselves, as we look at John, that as he had great confidence in the face of hostility, so you and I can take comfort and courage to be bold in the face of a world that is set against us. We are standing in a fallen world, amen? That's what the theme of this uh, revival series has been. And please note that uh, revival, is, as you know, uh, is not first and foremost for the unbeliever. It's for the church. Uh, is, if God's people will be revived, then it will lead to uh, salvations and folks turning to Christ. And so we realize that God's focus isn't first on someone else's house. Um, we'd always hope it would be somewhere else that God would deal, but God always cleans up his own house first, right? Ezekiel 9, 6, 1 Peter 4, 17. And we see that again here in the book of Revelation, notably chapters 2 and 3. But today we are clearly living in the midst of trying times for what I would say is true churches. I, I don't believe that Satan is really concerned about churches that are compromising. Uh, I think that he would pretty much just lay low. Uh, he's not concerned where the gospel is not truly being preached. He's not concerned about those who are trying to live sanctified lives, who are trying to make the Lord the King of glory in their lives and seeking to be holy as he's called them to, to be. But churches like this, the Lighthouse Baptist Church in, in Xenia, where you are upholding the gospel, where souls are being saved, where we just saw folks taking the next step and taking that uh, next step of believer's baptism and testifying publicly about the transformation that Christ is making. Listen, I, you could be assured of one thing. Satan does not like what's going on here. And he's going to do all he can to try to stop and resist and thwart this work of God, because this is not normal everywhere. I'm, I'm just telling you, uh, being familiar with other churches and traveling sometimes around uh, both locally and abroad at other churches, knowing that this just is not the norm. So I think it's important that we take that to understanding and understand that Satan is trying to stop. So tonight, to the church under attack, take courage. I'll give you three points. Uh, number one, the plight of the church. Number two, the presence and promises of Christ. And number three, the perseverance by the church. So number one, the plight of the church. Number two, we'll see the presence and promises of Christ. And then number three, the perseverance by the church. You know, I think we look at the world. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, when the whole world is running towards a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. And you think about to the world, you are swimming upstream. You are running the wrong direction. And they, for the life of them, cannot figure you out. And that's not always a bad thing. It's difficult at times because we are the minority. We oftentimes would like to believe that most of the people are going to heaven, but that's not what Jesus preached. He said the way was straight and narrow, and few there be that find it. And so we realize it's the minority of people that are truly in Christ and on the way to everlasting life. So we must know that the world will never understand us and so we don't expect them to they have a natural mind not the mind of christ so number one let's look at the plight of the church you know we'll see tonight really in john's story when true christianity becomes a crime and we're not there yet but i think if you look ahead honestly and objectively to history of mankind and how the people of god have always been treated uh, at some point 
true Christianity. I'm not saying false Christianity, or I'm not saying uh, lukewarm Christianity, but true biblical New Testament Christianity will eventually become a crime. It is at places around the world where it is a lot of hostility, and I think more as time passes, we will see that to be the case, and it will uh, put pressure on churches uh, either to conform uh, or to be, as we'll see tonight in just a moment, to be a nonconformist, to be a dissident. So number one, look at the plight of the church. Look at John's condition, and I want to kind of look at him as a case study and then relate that to you and I. Tonight, John had every reason to be discouraged. <laughs> you ever have a moment of discouragement, uh, maybe a season uh, of discouragement? Uh, all of us Bengals fans who thought we were coming right towards the Super Bowl were pretty discouraged after today, right? Well, we know with Joe Burrow, that's not going to last long. And when you think about the reality tonight of you and I as believers, there are times where we do get discouraged. Well, John had every reason to be discouraged. Why? I'm going to give you a few reasons to begin. Let's look at the plight of the early church here. Well, John first was in prison at Patmos. He was exiled to the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, Patmos was one of as many as 50 penal colonies of the Roman Empire. It would be likened for our day and time to Alcatraz. Uh, it would be a penal colony that really needed no bars because you were on an island and you weren't going to escape. And so we find that he was there under the uh, authority of Rome. He was there breaking rock. Patmos was an island, desolate, about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. It was located about 60 miles from Ephesus, 35 miles off the coast of Asia Minor and the Aegean Sea. A few other descriptions of this, uh, the commentator Barnes described Patmos as lonely, desolate, barren, uninhabited, seldom visited. It had all the requisites which could be desired for a place of punishment and banishment to that place would accomplish all that a persecutor could wish in silencing the apostle without putting him to death. Yet this exile did not silence the apostle John, as we'll see. Early tradition says John was banished there, and this would always include, consider this, we think about him being there, but think about what we don't read here. This would also have included the loss of all property, possessions, and civil rights. He was banished there under the persecutions of Domitian, he would have been about 90 years of age. Talking about discouragement. How would you like that nursing home? He was banished there not just to sit, but to work in the quarries, to work in the mines, to dig and cut out rock for a pagan empire, for, for Rome, to help further their causes. They targeted John because he obviously was hated as a leader in the early church. Hard labor would obviously have become him. The historian Sir William Ramsey said John's banishment would be preceded by scourging, marked by perpetual chains, scanty clothing, insufficient food, sleeping on bare ground, a dark prison cave, and work under the lash of a whip. We don't really have it too bad, do we, compared to where John was at. John's crime, what was he there for? Was he, be, he had broken some laws? Had he done things uh, that you and I would say, well, that, yeah, that's worthy of a prison sentence? No, his Crime was unshakable loyalty to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was there for doing what we call one another to do today. For what we've done today in this very church house. To proclaim the word of God. To testify of Jesus Christ. He was put there for that cause. And that's why I say there have been times and there are essentially places even now. Uh, we're certain preaching and things like this, and I believe in the future more and more, these kind of things where true Christianity will become a crime again. 
John was so devoted to the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ that he would rather be persecuted, lose all property, possessions, rights, and even be willing to die rather than be silent or recant his faith. You know, the truth of the matter is this. I think of John, it's kind of a, a, a axiomatic that had John been willing to recant his faith, he never would have been here. Had John just been willing to be silent, I don't think they would have sent him here. But John said, I would rather end my life in these conditions than to recant my faith for Christ. I'll, I'll go all in and I'll give up everything. And I just wonder tonight, how much would it take to silence us? John had many reasons to be discouraged. Not only had his conditions and the way his personal life was, but then consider the fact that now Jesus has been going for over five decades. Consider the fact that Jesus has not yet returned. He said, well, pastor, it's 2,000 years later and he still hasn't come. Well, look, you read the New Testament, they had every belief that he was coming back in their day and time. John had also lived to see Jerusalem destroyed. It was just a few years earlier than these writings, maybe 20 or more years earlier, that Jerusalem had been destroyed, brought down stone by stone. The temple, as we'll see, also was destroyed, that the temple was brought to rubble. They took down stone by stone to get all the gold out. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered. The Romans marched through Israel and destroyed 985 towns and villages. A massacre there occurred in all of John's countrymen. And we think about how discouraging all these things together could have been. John's condition, Jesus has been gone, he's not yet returned. Jerusalem destroyed, the temple brought to rubble. And then all his fellow apostles... Consider their end. They're all gone at this point. They didn't just die of old age. They didn't just go to sleep and not wake up one day. The plight of his fellow apostles were as such. They had been martyred, all but Judas, and, and he, he himself, they had all been martyred. We think about his own brother, James, who more than four decades earlier had already been beheaded. He'd been without his brother uh, in the work of Christ for over four decades. The others had been martyred, Andrew crucified, Bartholomew flayed with knives, uh, James the less killed and sawed in pieces, Jude killed with arrows, Peter crucified upside down, Philip hung, Simon crucified, Thomas speared is what history and tradition tells us. So you look at the plight of the fellow apostles and you ask yourself, I'm the last one. You know, there's a sense it's like you had 12 kids and you're the remaining child and you know what's coming, Right? And so you think about all these reasons, and then you think about the persecution that the early church faced. He talked about himself as a companion. He faced persecution, and he wrote to seven other churches who also at times and to varying degrees were facing persecution. He had helped to pastor and found these churches that began with Ephesus that went on the postal route to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These other churches had faced persecution. And then to add to that, he furthermore had reason to be discouraged because some of these churches had already started to defect from the faith. There was, there was a, a heretical teachings that were coming. There were false teachers that were coming in. There was wayward, immoral lives that were taking place in these churches. And now for some, the apostasy and compromise had abounded. Five of the seven were under serious threat by the Lord of the church. Ephesus had left his first love. Pergamus 
had become immoral and idolatrous, and the Lord had said, repent or else. You ever have one of those ultimatums as a child? You ever have one? If you had a parent like that, you had a good parent. I'm just telling you. You get an or else, that means don't go there. You know what I'm saying? You may not live uh, on the other side of that. He, he, he gave a Pergamus uh, repent or else comment. Thyatira had tolerated sin. Uh, Sardis was dead. Laodicea, we know, was, was lukewarm and vomit worthy. So he has all these reasons to be discouraged. He, here he is, and, and we think about what he faced. John is in prison. Jesus gone for over half a century. The Lord having not yet returned. Jerusalem and Israel destroyed and ransacked. The temple sitting in ruin. Nearly a thousand towns and villages destroyed. By some estimates, a million Jews were killed. He's outlived his fellow apostles. Uh, minus uh, uh, Judas, uh, the rest died a horrific martyr's death. The churches were persecuted. Others were compromising and defecting. And now he sits on a rock in prison for the cause of Christ. The night was dark. The hope seemed bleak. What was happening and what would the future bring? You got to ask yourself this question. Lord, th- there's got to be a side of John. Like, let, let's be honest here, okay? Now, maybe this wasn't him at all. But I think in my mind, like, in a weak moment, I could have been like, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't how this was supposed to go. But we know that he knew much more. Obviously, we read the Gospel of John that bears out his name. But we think about this and, and we consider, that there, is there not a sense where some of the discouragement, not to the degree, but maybe there is some hostilities that we face and we know in the future more and more of this is going to come. But there is the plight that John faced that many times in different degrees we may feel that same pressure. We may ask tonight, where's... Christ in our time of deepest need. What of Christianity in the church? What of our children and grandchildren's generation? You know, it breaks my heart. And we know that the Lord will strengthen them and give them the grace that's sufficient to live out their days for Christ. But isn't it also grievous to anyone that's got gray hair like mine and older? (laughs) To think about what we're leaving for this generation. Like, the generation we received wasn't this bad. And it should cause us to hang our heads in shame that in a sense we've left this for our kids and grandkids. And it breaks our hearts and you look ahead and say, man, what, what hope? <laughs> I see so many spineless people that won't stand for the cause of Christ. I think what are the pulpits in America going to look like in 20 or 30 years? It, it breaks my heart. And I, you, you're doing the same thing here. We're trying to do the same, just trying to raise up some men with a backbone that will stand and declare, thus saith the Lord. From a human standpoint, it was a bleak perspective. Everything had ended differently than he probably had expected. Was there a future for him? Was there a future for the church? What of the gospel? Here the true Christianity had become a a crime. He's there for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we can recognize tonight that we are moving in this direction. If I could just relate this just for a moment to you and I. I think it's important to remember a few things. Though we're not at the severity of John and maybe the early church we do see that we're moving in this direction. I think there was a day, I mean, I don't know it firsthand as a 45, almost 46-year-old man, but I see pictures. I've been in a lot of these churches, and I go back to these heydays of the 50s, 60s, and 70s of the Billy Graham crusades and revivals of these churches who would, who would just be absolutely packed out by the hundreds and hundreds and, and beyond. And now many of those places have been shut down and have been repurposed to other secular means, and, and they can barely keep the lights on. And, and you think about what has happened, right? What is the shift that's taking place in our, 
And yet we know that the Bible tells us that we've been promised this, haven't we? That, that the world will oppose us. He's, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you better know that it first hated me. It hated me for my words. It hated me for my works. And they don't first hate you. They hated me. And remember, they hated me without a cause. We see that in the days of Joseph, it was very similar. Joseph, after his day and time, another Pharaoh arose and Egyptians who did not know Joseph, and they made the people of God's life very bitter with hard labor and bondage. And though you say, well, yes, we're not slaves, I get that. But I'm just saying that the people of the world will have always treated the people of God in a harsh manner. We see this also was the plight the church was born into. You know, the New Testament church wasn't born on a beach somewhere. Is the, 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 the blood of the church, and the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we see that the church was, was, was birthed in fire, wasn't it? It was, it was birthed and born and immediately faced hostility. You, you can't get early into the book of Acts and not find Peter and John standing up against the authority, standing up against the religious leaders and saying, we ought to obey God rather than men. I mean, they don't get very far out of Pentecost and they're met with hostility. So the church has always been this way. Since the New Testament times, the history of the church has been such. We see in 1 Corinthians 4.13, it says, Being defamed, we entreat, we are made as the filth of the world, and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. The filth of the world, the offscouring of all things unto this day. That word offscouring literally is the, the scrapings. <laughs> there are many different ways you could describe this, but, but I get the vision here of like the scrapings on the bottom of a pan. I, Brother Josh would appreciate this. We grew up eating cream of wheat. Anybody out there, you like cream of wheat? Hallelujah. Oh, man, you got some good Baptist folk here tonight. Well, if you didn't make cream of wheat right, there was a big issue. My wife don't like when we make cream of wheat because I'm not very diligent about it. It all ends up about the same. But if you really want to do it right, you got to stir and stir and stir. And there's a ball game I'm watching or something else I get carried away with. You get a little carried away and you let that thing simmer too long, you're going to end up, you're going to eat your cream of wheat, but when you get done, you're going to have some off-scouring on the bottom of that pan. And it's going to take a lot of scraping and scrubbing, and unfortunately, it ends up being sometimes, sadly, my wife, all right, she's over there. She's like, don't you do this to me anymore, all right? And I think about that, that, that scum that you're just trying to get off the bottom of the pan. The world looks to the church. They look to Christians, and they say, you are the scum at the bottom of the barrel. That's how we view you. Hebrews 11 talks about this down through time where it says others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, moreover bonds and imprisonments. Hebrews 11:37. Stones, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, torment, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. I'm just here to say, the Lord promises this. The early church was born into this. This has been the history of the people of God, really from the beginning of time. And can I just give you just a, another interjection? Something that I came across some time back and I thought was helpful. Just to see a little glimpse into maybe how some things could come about in our days and times and over these last few years, we've seen the strong overreach of the, of the government of the United States, and maybe they had kind of a, throw, a, 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 a reasoning for it. But any way you cut it, they dictated to the church what they could and couldn't do, at least verbally, right? And so there's a strong overreach 
uh, by the government and, and others trying to reach in and tell the church what they can and can't do and what they can and cannot say. And one thing happened back in England in the 1600s, and we know that the Church of England, the Anglican church that was there, uh, is different than the way we were set up. And so therefore, we're going to be spared some of these hardships. But just hear this out and maybe pull a few principles out of it. In the 1600s, you had the Anglican church and you had these people that were in it that were pure to the word of God. And you had the state, the government, and the church that were joined together. And so the government could essentially say to the church what she should not do. They're married together, and so it was joined uh, one in the same. But what happened was as the government kept impressing upon the church what she should and shouldn't do, what she should and shouldn't say, there were people what became known as the, quote, nonconformists. They were the dissidents. They would not go along with what the government was decreeing upon them. Let me give you a few examples of that. It started back in the 1600s. They, the government passed four acts to try to drive out systematically these preachers who would not go along with their decrees. They passed four acts, 1661, the Corporation Act. I'm just going to summarize real quick. The Corporation Act, which simply is said in 1661, the effect of was this. If you did not go along with what their codes were, you could not serve in public office. So essentially, any of these nonconformists who would not go along could not serve in a public governmental capacity. The second act was the 1662 Act of Uniformity. And it was... Uh, made the Book of Common Prayer compulsory in religious services. And as a result of this, notably, upwards of 2,000 clergy refused to comply with this act and were forced to resign their livings. Uh, can you imagine, again, uh, we are an independent church, and so we are separate from this, but just imagine what the, the government said, essentially, if you're not going to go along, you can't serve in government. Secondly, you're going to read these book of common prayers that we have had a say in, and you may not by conscience and conviction of the scriptures go along with, with everything that they decree that you pray, and you're saying by conscience, I can't go along with this, I can't sign off on this, and as a result, 2,000 gave up their livelihoods, and they gave their farewell speech, we'll look at it in just a moment, two other acts were passed after that, the Conventicle Act of 1664, which after they thrust out these 2,000 clergymen who would not go along, preach their farewell sermon, they would, they forbid them, listen to this, in 1664 in England, they forbid them from having the ability to meet with five people or more that were not part of your family. You could not assemble with any more than five people unless they were your family. And then the, the fourth one was the Five Mile Act. The Five Mile Act was again aimed at the nonconformist ministers who were forbidden from coming within five miles of incorporated towns or places of their former livings. They were also forbidden to teach in schools. And so essentially, they did not want them to continue to influence their church. They did not want to influence the people there. So they said, you're not allowed to come in within five miles of, what, of everything you knew. And then at the end of all this, these same nonconformists were not allowed to be buried within the normal burial place, normal cemetery, so they're buried outside of the cemetery. So why do I say all this? Because the government, though it was married with the church, I get that, my point not being so much that, but just to say that the government was pressing, 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 passing acts saying you can't serve in government, you have to pray the way we say you should pray, you're not allowed meeting with so many people unless it's within your family, you can't eventually come within five miles of the place of your living, and as a result, halfway through this, and after that act of uniformity, 
August 17, 1662, 361 years ago, uh, this last month, there were 2,000 uh, faithful preachers to the Word of God who preached their farewell speech in those pulpits of the Anglican Church. August 24th, known as Black Bartholomew Day, they were driven out. Can you imagine England losing, the Anglican Church losing 2,000 faithful preachers of the gospel who would not go along? And they say that since that time, They've never been the same. And you wonder sometimes, and though I say, well, Pastor doesn't already, I, I, I get it. I'm just, I think there's just a point to be made there uh, about how some of these things can, can come and overreach by those uh, uh, above us. There comes a point where you and I must realize that our conscience is not first to government, not first to a political party, not first to any other branch of something that we may be connected with. We are first, our conscience is bound to the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must stand for that and that alone. And we must not cower in the face of this. The world may call us nonconformists, but you know what? I take that as a badge of honor because I'm called not to conform to this world. I'm called to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. Amen? So we see that in Romans chapter 12. We see that not only the great ejection and how that impacted them, but we think about the present. You know, all throughout history, from Egypt to Babylonians' time, Assyria, uh, Romans, England, all the way to even down to the present, we can begin to see how that we are the off-scouring. We, we are not looked well upon. Now look, if you want to compromise and, and not talk about the exclusivity of Christ and you don't want to talk about sin and repentance and judgment and that, that H word, you know, hell, don't, don't talk about that and, and just kind of make it a nice smooth uh, speech going down. You, you can be applauded by people. You can be accepted uh, by people. But, but don't get too worked up. Don't become too, quote-unquote, fundamental. And yet you go back to what they did in the scriptural times, and you say, how can I do anything but preach the gospel as it is in the New Testament? There's a softness today. What concerns me is there's a softness to many Christians where they expect love from those who hate you. They try to appease and accommodate an enemy. Now let me say to you today, please don't be foolish. I don't think we should go out of here seeking to antagonize unnecessarily. Don't fight over non-issues and non-events. But at the same time, as believers, we must not expect the enemies of God to love us. We have a soft Christian generation that oftentimes will refuse to take a stand for truth. They would rather be silent than to ruffle the feathers of those who hate God. Please remember the long line of believers that you stand within. Rebels can't be coddled, they must be broken. They can't be convinced they must repent. The gospel offends, period. We need not try to be offensive, but let's not ever uh, compromise Christ, the canon or the gospel, into a message that accommodates sinners in their sin. There is no salvation without repentance. And if we remove the convincing of the sinner that they are the offenders of God, that they are in enmity with God, that God only loves them, that they are his children, that God is their friend, then we pervert the gospel and we give them another gospel with another spirit and another Jesus. We must speak the truth in love, call sinners to repent, point them to Jesus, speak humility in love, knowing ourselves that we are sinners forgiven by God's grace. This is now the present. We find more and more we're going to see increasing hostility against Christ in the true church. I don't know if you understand this, and I think maybe Brother Josh, I'm sure he maybe is kind of on the front lines of some of this as a pastor. Not everything does the congregation always know when I think about some of the pressure that pastors and churches are under. And I see it crip, uh, uh, sneaking in. I see these things where the world more and more is trying to pressure you and antagonize you. We've had people come to the church's door over things that we hold to, things that we've said. 
just simple proclaiming of the gospel, proclaiming of what the Bible declares, and people coming knocking on your door and making you know, accusations and just blasting you. And now you've got social media where anyone at any time can say anything about anybody. It doesn't matter. There's one ounce of truth in that thing. They can slander you to the hilt. We find ourselves in increasing days of hostility and woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. You know, we live in a day where, where words don't even have to mean what they once did. There, there's a, that, that verse, woe unto them that call evil good. Notice there's a redefining of the word. Good no longer means what it does. And that's what our world does today. They've re, redefined the words. They changed the narrative. Whatever fits them. We'll make the word say whatever. He said, well, that's not what it's always meant. It doesn't matter. We'll make it say what we want it to say. He said, well, is there any hope? Well, we're always looking for end times revival, and I pray that happens, but I like what H.B. Charles said. While we pray for an end times revival, the Bible promises an end times rebellion. Perilous times will come. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You say, well, is there any hope, Pastor? You doom and gloom? Negative Nancy tonight? Give us some good news. Well, i got to give you the bad news before you enjoy and appreciate the good news. Is there any hope? I'm telling you tonight, there's 100% hope. We look at the ply of the church, look at number two, the presence and promises of Christ. The presence and promises of Christ. There's promises that are for us. What the enemy doesn't know is that we have a secret weapon, one that always prevails. And we see the promises that are there. Look at these verses with me. Notice in verse number nine, John says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, you know the first thing I think that is helpful to know when we face whatever hostility? It's very blessed to know that you are not alone. He says, I am your companion. John is writing to seven churches. They likely, these pastors would have come to the island, visited him. He would have written this seven times, the book of Revelation, given it to them. They would have went back to their churches and read this in those seven respective churches listed in verse number 11. It's helpful to know that when you're on an island and you think there's no hope and everything seems to maybe have turned out a little different than what you might have anticipated, just to know that you're not alone. That when you go back to school tomorrow, you're not alone. When you go to your workplace, you're not alone. When you go back to your home and you're a new believer, that you're not alone. That when you're standing in the city of Xenia, in this Greene County area, that your church isn't the only one in America or in Ohio that's preaching the gospel. It's helpful to know God has always reserved a remnant. Hallelujah. 7,000 haven't bowed the knee. We see the presence of Jesus. Notice in verse 10 and 11. The Lord shows up. He says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and here he is, and the, the, Christ comes and speaks to him. Here John has this fantastic, spectacular vision. He has the presence of Christ. And I love this thought. The Lord is closest when it seems things are at their worst. Psalm 34 describes that he is near the broken heart. He is near the distress. He comes unto them. And you know, there's a sense where when things get more difficult, our vision becomes clear. We seek the Lord. When things are going well, we have a tendency to drift. My friend, we come unto Christ close and near when things get tough. John had a spectacular vision. And we could all say, boy, I would love to be able to see what John saw and what he wrote in this great book of Revelation until you think about what it costs for him to receive this vision. 
We think of John's spectacular vision. You should also remember that John was in prison on Patmos. Jesus is often known most intimately in the midst of suffering and trial. John, here on the island of Patmos, gets the greatest revelation, arguably, anyone's had this side of Jesus' resurrection. Stephen, what did he have? As he's being stoned to death, he looks up into heaven and the heavens are open and he sees the Son of Man, sees the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. His glorious vision came as he's being stoned to death. John on the island of Patmos has this great spectacular vision. Listen, sometimes when we're at the lowest moment, God gives us the greatest manifestation of his vision and of his glory. MacArthur said this, well, let me say one more. Asaiah said, the wrath of the wicked does but bring saints the nearer to the choice favors of God. MacArthur said, John's crime was unshakable loyalty to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The wrath of the wicked put John in that place. The Patmos of persecuting Rome, however, was suddenly the door of the most sublime and glorious communion ever had by any man with God. Doomed to a rock of exile, the apostle soared on the wings of prophetic revelation to the very throne and glory of God in Christ. Shut out from the world, he traversed the heavenlies. Consider what evil was intended toward John, yet contemplate what presence and promise he received in the book of Revelation. You think about reading through the book of Revelation and what great hope that it gives us and all the promises that it gives us. Let me just share a few things, and we don't have time to belabor these, but you, you can read this on your own. John was blessed to experience what he did, and we are still blessed 2,000 years later. This is so true that God plunges us into brokenness that we might feel his heart. We might know what he knows and, and, and endures. Hardships and affliction, but just draw us near the Savior's side. Who is this Christ, our Savior, Lord, and King? The same Christ as King overall. Notice what we learn about him. I'll just reference these things. Just listen as we think back to Revelation 1. But if you read in verses 1 to 8, this is some of the things you'll learn about the presence of Christ and the promises of Christ. Well, the first thing we know that this is the great revelation of, of Christ, isn't it? This is the unveiling of Christ. And this is the unveiling, meaning he is the one who gives us the promise of a bright future. He holds and controls our tomorrow. The one who can reveal the future, guess what? Also holds the future. We see in verse number 2 and 3, the blessing for reading and hearing what is written, telling us of our future hope and victory. Verse 4 and 5, the promises come from the eternal one, the Father, Spirit, and Son, who is and was and is to come. Then it speaks of Christ in verse 5, of the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. Verse 5 also says that to Jesus Christ, who's the son who loved us. Can I say, you know, it's helpful to know in the worst of times that God loves you. Amen. We're not always easy to love, are we? But he loves me. Amen. Verse 5 says he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Listen, you're not just given a future and a hope. You're not just given the promises that he knows the future, but he holds the future. He's the prophet, priest, and king. He, was, he is, he was, he is to come. You are loved and you are washed. And then verse 6 says, he's made you kings and priests unto, your, unto God and your father. We will get to serve and reign with him. He holds all glory and dominion. Verse 7 says, he will come in the clouds and at his second coming, every eye will see him. Verse 8, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the A and the Z. He's the source, sustainer, and summation of all things. We find in 
He loves and cherishes his bride, the church, in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Notice verse 10 as we continue. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. You know, Sunday, the Lord's day, was the day that he gathered, in a sense, and worshiped the Lord. He said, well, who did he gather with? Well, listen, he, he and the Lord were an assembly, amen. <laughs> we don't know if anyone else was there, but I would say to you, it was the Lord's day, and he was still giving God his first place in his life. We see that the Sabbath day was the day to honor God as creator. Sunday is the day to honor the risen Lord. Verse 11 says that he's the Alpha, the Omega, and he says right to these churches. Verse 12 and 13 talks about the candlesticks. Verse 13 says that one likened to the Son of Man was there. You know, the Son there is of the nature of. He has the nature of a man, though he's not a man. He's the God-man. He has the nature of man. He has the nature of God. He's the Son of God. He identified with us as the Son of Man. He's clothed with a garment, verse 13, down to the foot. He has a golden girdle about his chest. The robe and golden belt speaks of his priestly work. He's here as the head of the church, as the priest of the church, interceding on behalf of the church to God the Father. Aren't you thankful tonight that sometimes you're so weak and you don't always know what to pray, but God through Christ, is, there is intercession. Christ as our intercessor is praying on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is making intercessions to God with utterances that we don't even know how to formulate. He is our priest, king, and prophet. Verse number 14 continues. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. It says his head was white. His hair is white like wool. You know, some of us tonight are more Christ-like than others. Amen? Brother Josh, I don't know why you're trying to be unchrist-like, but uh, just stop putting that stuff up there. You're going to look more like Jesus. Amen? That's what I like to say. Amen? It goes on to say there that his eyes are as a flame of fire. What's this? Nothing escapes his vision. All things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do, Hebrews 4.13 says. Revelation 1.15 goes on to say as well that his feet were like brass. They burned in a furnace. Brass was always sp spoke of judgment, right? The altar was a brazen altar. Judgment, sacrifice, trampling out. There's a terrifying passage in Isaiah 63 where it talks about the one who would come. He says, who is this one that comes from Basra, from, from Edom? And, and it talks about he comes with a garment that is, that is dipped and, and sprinkled, splattered with blood, and he's trampling out the grapes. And as he trampled out the grapes, the blood of those grapes splattered across him. And there's this picture we always see Jesus as like this really soft-spoken, never offended anybody guy that kind of comes and he's always, you know, he's holding babies and he's, and, and, and he's making his way down and everybody loves him and he never had an enemy one. And we think about this shepherd, we think about this loving savior. Then we see this vision in Isaiah 63 where he's trampling out grapes like he will trample out sinners one day when he comes at the second coming. You better receive him as savior because you don't want to face him as sovereign. You better get right now because you don't want to face him on that day. He will trample. His feet are significant. He puts underneath his feet all things. He has a voice as a sound of many waters, as it says there in verse 15. And we see that it would talk many times about the sound of a trumpet. Trumpets were used to announce, to call an assembly. They could call together for worship. They could gather people together for an assembly. Or they could call together for battle. 
Verse 16 goes on to say, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And his seven stars are his right hand of favor. Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, the word of God. Amen? His countenance as the sun shines, as its brightest, the radiant glory of God. And how would John respond when he sees him? You could say, was John discouraged? Did John have all these things against him? And yet in verse 17, he gets this glimpse of the risen Lord and Savior. And verse 17 says, and when I saw him. Sounds kind of like Isaiah 6.1. And when I saw him, what would his response have been? I fell at his feet as what? As dead. What kind of response will we have when we see the Lord? What would our rightful response be? What is this? He says, I fell at his feet as dead. Now you ask yourself this question. You've read the Bible. You've heard it taught and preached. I know your pastors studied through the Gospel of John. You remember John 13. You remember the last time, in a sense, that in his pre-risen state, that John saw him in the upper room. And in John 13, 23 to 25, they're there and they're wondering who it would be that would betray them. Betray the Lord. And it says that John rested his head upon the chest of Jesus. I, I read that. I, I, I'm like, man, they must have had a really tight-knit relationship. I love my brother Josh. I'm not real inclined to lay my head on his chest, you know? <laughs> Now, when I give him a hug, it's about as high as I get, though. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we'll hug, but it's kind of like the manly hug and then move on, you know? I think about reclining at dinner, resting my head on his chest, to, to think that he called himself the beloved of the Lord, that his relationship was so close that he could recline his head on another man's chest, that they were that close. Why doesn't he have the same opinion of the Lord when he sees him risen why does he go up and squeeze on him again and lay his head on him again it's not the same is it he's not reclining on his chest at this point but what gives what changes from a human that was there before them that they could see with their eyes to now this resurrected glorified son of God son of man the risen king the Lord of glory is there before him and when he sees him he's not break dancing with him he's not bear hugging him he's not laying his head on his chest he falls before him as a dead man wow lifeless prostrate complete fear and reverence before the God of the universe He's not giving him a piece of his mind. He's not saying, why'd you leave me to languish away on this prison? No, he's declaring, I am dead. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, he would have been dead. You can't look upon the Lord and live. What is God looking for in us? I believe the same spirit that John had. Isaiah 66, 2 says this, But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. Listen, let me ask you tonight, Isaiah 66 too, do you ever tremble at the word of God? Would you not tremble at the risen Lord, the risen word of God? There should be a, a holy shaking of the people of God when we read some of these warnings from the Lord. It should move us to action to say, 
the, the, the Lord of the universe has given me a commandment and I must not say, I'll put it off to tomorrow. I'll delay that decision. No, no. His commands are my marching orders. I don't have a decision to delay obedience. That's disobedience. What he's commanded of me, I must obey and I must obey now. I will tremble before him. I ask you tonight, do you tremble? You want to know why God's used Brother Josh and Sister Candace so well? Because these are two people that I have observed who have trembled at the word of God. They're not just preaching and teaching. They believe it and they're seeking to live by it. And I've watched this in them since they were teenagers. When I was a wayward teenager, before I gave my life to Christ, I, had, I knew I had a head knowledge, but not a heart knowledge. Your pastor used to read the Word of God at night. And I wasn't where I needed to be. I had a head knowledge, but not a heart knowledge. I, I don't believe I was truly born again. And he'd sit over there at night, and he had his little nightlight on. I liked to get to bed because I had to get up the next morning. And here's what I'd hear. A few minutes have passed, and I'm trying to sleep. I'm thinking my mind just shut the light off. I can't say anything because he's reading the Bible. And then I, then I just hear him keep reading on and reading on. And I hear. And then he just keep reading on. The lights stay on. And I'm just sitting there. There's like, you're just, not, you know what I mean? You're just waiting for the turning of the page at this point, you know? You're just, you, you know it's coming, you know? And this went on and on. And I finally had enough. I mean, like Satan within me just swelled up. And I said, would you turn the light off? I'm trying to sleep. And it was like, man, God just smoked me, you know. He couldn't have been 13, 14 years of, old, of age. And he loved God's word. Then I saw your pastor's wife in the youth ministry had a love for God. A sincere, genuine, authentic love for God who would cry out to the Lord and would seek the face of the Lord. I, I've watched this in him for decades. There's no, it doesn't surprise me at all what God's doing here. And you want God to use you? You better humble yourself as a servant of God. You better love the Word of God. And you better tremble before that Word. And that doesn't mean you cast it aside and let it collect dust. It means that you read it, you hear it, you study it, you memorize it, you meditate upon it, you preach it where you're able, you teach it where you're able, you try to live it out before others, and God sees a heart like that. He said, that's what I'm looking for. Very rare to find. Notice what happens also, and I know our time's kind of winding down here. Verse number 13. If you don't get much else, get this. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and the girdle about to pass with a golden girdle. And then over in verse number 19, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars, uh, uh, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. You know what we find in verse 13? We find that in the midst of the seven candlesticks, what does verse 20 say the seven candlesticks are? The seven churches. In the midst of the seven churches, one likened to the Son of Man, the Son of God, the risen Lord. He's in the midst of the church. Can I say to you, it doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter what your family say. It doesn't matter what carnal mankind around you say. Church is vital. 
Church is essential. Do you want to know how to be close to Christ? You need to be in the church because you want to know where Christ is? He's in the midst of the church. You say, what's he doing today? You say, where's he at? Is he up in heaven? No, he's in the midst of his church. He's moving in the church. You want to be close to Christ? You need to come in the church and come under the church and come off in the church and come within the assembly of the believers and work in and through the family of God because nothing of eternal value, nothing of supreme significance in the work of God takes place outside the vehicle of the local church. It is without question what Christ is using in this age of grace to accomplish his work on the earth. You need to make the ministry of the church your life's work. Come to church. Love the church. Serve in the church. Let this be your life work. Let this be your primary objective. Go in the church. I like what Spurgeon said. Do not go where it is all fine music, grand talk, and beautiful architecture. Go where the gospel is preached and go often. Christ is moving in his church. He's active. He's not dormant. He sees, he examines, he rebukes, he commends. He calls us to himself. He calls us to be his light in these dark days. He intercedes and he's the head of the church. So where is he? He's in the midst of the church. You don't need to look for him out there. He tells us where he is. Hallelujah. Let me give you this thought also, verse 16 and verse 20. Verse 16 says he holds the seven stars in his hand. Well, verse 20 says the seven stars that he holds in his right hand are the messengers, the angels. Now, I think that most commentators and theologians would hold that is clearly these angels, these messengers are none other than the pastors of those churches. Now, when you think about how encouraging that is, that the Lord Jesus holds his pastors in his hands. He holds those messengers in his right hand. You know what? There's a sense and a part as a pastor, and the Lord may let you come home early because there's times where they were martyred for the faith. We'll read in Revelation 5 and 6, Revelation 6 notably. But there's a sense where when he holds you in his right hand as a pastor, it's kind of like, there's just a little bit, this is carnal, all right? There's a side of me that's just kind of like, Bring it. Come on with it. Because to get to me, you got to get through him. Amen? I mean, there was a sign. I was like, what are you going to do to me, world? Because you got to go through him to touch me. Amen? I, I don't think we should tempt the Lord. You say, well, pastor, I'm not, a, I'm not a minister. I don't have that promise. Oh, that's not true. John chapter 10, 27 to 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. You have these promises as well. Well, in closing tonight, what should we do as far as the perseverance? Well, let me just leave you with this. I think you kind of get the application. We need to press on for the Lord. For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ is worth it. What are you living for? Is it worth dying for? Is it worth suffering for? John found his purpose. He found that treasure. He sold it all and gave it up for the Lord. Listen, there's a sense where we need to press on for the Lord. We can't drop the baton in our generation. It may not look the same in this generation. It may not look the same in our grandkids' generation. But we have to do our part. As I said this morning, we can't control the outcome, but we can control our obedience. And for that, we will be responsible. Press on. Preach on. John continued on for the word of God and the testimony of Christ. Press on. Preach on. And then write on. You know, can't you imagine the enemy? Can't you imagine Rome? You're like, all right, we've got the chief apostle the only one that we haven't essentially killed off. 
And now we've exiled him to the island of Patmos. We finally shut him up. And then what does the Lord say? John, take the pen and write. And arguably, John did more work with the pen and the Holy Spirit of God that we are still reaping the benefits of 2,000 years ago. Listen, the world may think they're going to silence you and shut you up and put you away in prison. And that may just give the apostle, that may just give the believer more time to write the Word of God and use whatever means to get the gospel out. Hallelujah. Right on. Press on. Persevere like John. Know this, you may be in your 90s. Like John, you may have been arrested, beaten, be in exile, in prison, breaking rock for a pagan nation. You may have lost all your property, possessions, and people. Jesus hasn't returned. Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. A million of your countrymen have died. Your fellow apostles have been martyred. Your fellow believers are all facing persecution. Some are compromising and defecting. Yet remember this, that Christ is alive and well. He has overcome. He has all authority and dominion. He's present with you. He equips you with all his promises that are yes and amen. And remember, he asks nothing of you that he didn't first give unto you and you give up nothing that you won't receive a hundredfold so in closing where is christ today he told us he's in the midst of the church and my only question for you tonight are you in the midst of the church there's a lot of you that are in the midst of your careers you're in the midst of your hobbies and pastimes you're in the midst of whatever your family's got going on but you're not in the midst of the church. Do you love this church? Do you serve in this church? Do you give your time, talents, and treasures to further the gospel of this church? Listen, you say, I want to be close to Christ. You better get in the midst of a Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church like this and go all in. Pastor, this isn't a perfect church. Well, guess what? If it's not perfect, please don't join it because you're not going to help it out at all. You're not going to find a perfect church All you're going to find is people who love the Lord and are trying to go that direction. Get on board.